Today we have a neuroscientist turned software engineer. His name is Dr. Daniel Manson and he used to be a PhD student at the University College London in John O'Keefe's lab where he studied the firing patterns of grid cells. Then he decided to leave the academia and switch to industry. He's currently working for a company called Land Insight. Just like Munich, London has a massive housing problem. And Land Insight is a company that aims to alleviate that problem by helping land developers to source sites and manage the deals once they find a plot of land that they would like to acquire and build something on it. This time I decided to do something a little bit different, so you will hear me again comment on the concepts that Daniel or I mentioned but we do not necessarily explain and I would like to make them clearer to the listeners. Thank you very much for tuning in and I hope you enjoy and come back. Just briefly introduce yourself okay. and give a little bit of background. Hi, I'm Daniel, um, Daniel Manson. I uh, finished a PhD at UCL in neuroscience a couple of years ago, and I've since moved on to being a software developer at a company called Land Insight. Could you briefly describe what you did during your PhD? What was the focus of your project? Okay, so my PhD was on grid cells, single unit recording from grid cells. So I put electrodes in rat brains uh, and let the rats run around in a one meter square environment and record the activity of the grid cells. And one, the one specific thing I was looking at was if, if we added extra things into the environment, lots of different textures on the floor and on the walls, whether that would change the pattern of the grid cells. explain what grid cells are, but I would like to just briefly mention that those are the cells in the medial interrenal cortex that fire when the animal is at certain positions in the environment. And if you record the grid cell for a longer time period, for several sessions, say, you will see that when you look at the firing pattern, forms this beautiful hexagonal grid that covers the entire environment. And there is a hypothesis that these cells can help the animal to estimate the distance that it has traveled in the environment. And later on, Daniel mentions oscillatory interference model. This is a model proposed by Neil Burgess to explain how an animal could use grid cells to estimate distance traveled in the environment. There is a famous theta oscillation from 4 to 12 hertz in the hippocampus and the interrhinal cortex. And so grid cells increase their intrinsic membrane potential above theta frequency by an amount proportional to the animal's speed of running in a certain direction, according to this model. And then the phase difference between this intrinsic oscillation, which is above theta frequency, and the somatic input at theta frequency 
essentially integrates velocity. So this interference of the intrinsic oscillation above theta frequency and the theta frequency level oscillation reflects the distance traveled in a certain direction. but I didn't have any particularly of my own. So yeah, so I recorded I recorded the grid cells as the rat was running around in the, in the box. And um, I was hoping to see that if we provided more information to the rats, the rat would be able to perhaps more accurately uh, recognize its exact position because you know, there was more information available to it. Um, and that maybe it would um, alter the scale of the grid cells so that they would be more precise somehow. You know, the distance between the peaks of the grid would shrink if there was more information available. In the end, it was the result was a lot more complicated. There was something to do with stability. You know, with more information in the environment, the pattern was more stable. From um, each time the animal came back, it was more stable, and it was more stable during the trial, of, sort of like during the twenty-minute trial. But there wasn't a strong result about the scale, which is a bit disappointing. Well, very disappointing, of course. But even before that, you were not. Close to neuroscience, right? You were Correct, yeah. doing more mathematics? Right? Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, my undergraduate degree was in mathematics and physics. I think when I was about 15, I actually wanted to do neuroscience, but I kind of, I think I kind of looked down on it and thought, you know, this, how can this be like a pure science? And I guess I was also a little bit scared. I didn't know exactly what I would do with if I did neuroscience and um, didn't know if I'd be any good at it. And I was good at maths and physics, so I went down that route. And I wasn't intending to do a PhD at all. It was really only like it was during my gap year after my undergraduate degree that I decided I wanted to actually go and study neuroscience. And thankfully, I was able to do it with uh, with the degree I had. Since then, did your opinion kind of swing back? So <laughs> <laughs> uh, from the inside, neuroscience doesn't seem like a good science. Well. Neuroscience is fascinating. The day-to-day -day reality of it, I did not enjoy. Um, I think it was pretty clear to all my colleagues by the end. Um, definitely clear to me. Um, and I think, I mean, I think a lot of my peers as well didn't seem to enjoy the day-to-day -day reality either. When sort of really big results come out of neuroscience, it's, it's amazing. Um, I just can't face being involved myself. <laughs> But is it just the daily grind of being a scientist in any discipline, or is there something specific about neuroscience that rubs you the wrong way? Well, I, I can't speak for any other discipline. I mean, um, the thing, well, I found lots of things frustrating, but one of the most difficult things was the, the sort of the cycle time that, you know, you would have an idea, plan an experiment. We, well, you have to learn a technique as well, somewhere in all that, and then, you know, put, get some preliminary data, and then maybe try and turn that into something you could publish and then it actually you know, go and get the, the real data and then analyze the real data and you know, p-hacking, dare I say it, you know, you have to do. And that cycle time could last, I mean, especially when you're starting out. I mean, I had no experimental background, so it took me a long, long time to get good at doing the, the practicality side of it. And I didn't have a lot of patience for it either. So, it took a good two years or something before I could 
reliably, well, I say reliably, I, before I could, you know, get any real data. And that was, that was just way too long for me. You know, as now as a programmer, I can try something out, hit like save, and five, minute, five seconds later, I can be testing it. Um, you know, even if I want to put something into production and have all my users do it, I can still do that within a day, for example. Um, just a lot more satisfying. And I think the, the tool I built during my PhD, which was one of the more positive things to come out of it, was kind of to address that. Well, it addressed lots of things, but in particular, it addressed this kind of concept of like, how can we make it easier to get through that process and you know, the previously it'd been a lot of work to collect the data and sort of you know do the first very basic processing of the data um, and even to what we call screening which is you know to to decide whether your electrodes are positioned correctly and if not to move them now that was a very painstaking very very dull process that you know you could take somebody off the street and teach them in 20 minutes or you know, at most a couple of hours to do it and you know you sit in a dark lab doing it or sit in at home doing it for days on end and at my heart I am a programmer and I could see this could be solved and I felt like I've got to solve this problem and I think I was quite happy with the result so well sure enough there are very frustrating aspects about the experimental side but yeah. you could have stayed and have done computational neuroscience and pure modeling or just data analysis from someone else's data set right that's that's a good question so um I think before I went into it, I knew I was going to be bad. Like I had no doubt in my mind that I, you know, I'm not good with my hands. I'm not, <laughs> not um, clumsy, come from a clumsy family. Um, but I thought like in this field, the data is king. You know, you can hypothesize all you want. You can play with other people's data all you want, but it, it, it's very rare that you kind of reanalyze someone else's data and reach some fantastic conclusion or that, you know, you could convince somebody else to do an experiment for you because you think your idea is better than their idea. So really, if you want to, you know, if you're really, if you really want to get down and dirty and test some, some of your own ideas, then it's got to be you doing it. Um, and I just kind of accepted that, like, I'm going to, I'm going to go down that route, I'm going to do the experiments. And in fact, one of the guys I was sitting next to who'd come from a similar background to me had done what you suggested and not, not done experiments early on and he'd been, he'd completed his PhD and he'd done, um, he started a, a postdoc and I, I can't remember exactly what stage he was at, I think he did two postdocs in the end, but he realised later on that he needed to do experiments because it, you know, it's difficult to build a career and it's, you know, it's not very rewarding to just be analysing other people's data um, and he, I mean, he struggled Maybe not quite as much as me, but you know, he certainly found it very, very difficult to to do that. Um, and he he was demotivated as well. So um, I mean, there's there's something to be said for like not accepting people without experimental experience onto a, a very experimental PhD, at least not without some kind of warm up or something. <laughs> <laughs> but I think it, yeah, it's all about the data. I mean, there's. Yeah, but there is something that you've alluded to, which I think is a big problem, that even if you do experiments and you get the data, it's usually such a small sample size and yeah, such yeah. noisy data set yeah. that... And it, you're kind of, you have to publish something at the end yeah. of it. You can't say after two years, which is basically what I did at the end of my PhD, I was like, I don't think there's anything particularly interesting here, I can't face making it look nice and... I kind of vaguely promised I would do something with it and in the end I just moved on and nothing seems to have happened in the end. But 
you know, if I was really pursuing a career, I couldn't have done that. I would have had to, you know, dress it up and, you know, try and find something. I mean, there were some small exciting things in there. Well, not there were some small things in there um, that could have been published, but there are there are so many papers being published by people who spent a lot of hard work and doing the the you know all the way through the however many years it's taken them to to get there. And you know, in the end, when you know when you discuss the paper in a journal club, or whatever, everybody sort of kind of knows that there's not that much in it at the end, and that was. I mean, to think that even if I do publish it, there's going to be a group of people somewhere in the world sitting around saying, this is, does this really tell us anything? Um, that was... At this point, I mentioned my friend who is a computational neuroscientist whose model was rejected because of the conflicting observation from one empirical study while it was supported by a massive amount of prior evidence but nonetheless it was rejected by the reviewers of his paper because of this one contradictory piece of evidence so i bring this case in the conversation to ask daniel's opinion and then later on he mentions neil uh, that is Neil Burgess from the University College London, who used to work with John O'Keefe himself and now leads his own lab still at the UCL. this sort of push-pull dynamic between the data and the theory really frustrating because sometimes uh, his model once uh, was rejected because there was one uh, experimental paper that was uh, coming to conflicting conclusions okay. while there were several supporting his theory, yeah, but yeah. because data is king yeah, yeah. and there was this single observation in yeah. this paper, the reviewers were like, your model cannot address this. And of course, the other side of that is that you can easily like adapt your model. So yeah. like the oscillatory interference model, which was you know, Neil's, isn't it, I don't know, is, was Neil's big thing. Um, you know, you can add as many parameters and knobs and whatever onto it and kind of make it fit whatever you need it to fit. Um, and I mean, there are so many parameters in the brain, like who knows how it, how it works. I mean, I think, you know, I think we, we're starting to have a better idea. Um, what do you think is the better idea now in neuroscience? Okay, so at the beginning of the PhD, I kind of, um, I was thinking like a, like a programmer, like a computer scientist and thinking, you know, I understand how algorithms work. I, you know, the brain can't be that complicated, right? Like, you know, it's just processing information. And in fact, I had lots of discussions with, with various people about this analogy of, you know, if you want to get from A to B, you know, say you want to get from London to Manchester, it doesn't matter what route you take, you pretty much have to cover all the distance in between them. And, you know, whether you take a motorcycle or a car or you walk or whatever, you're going to kind of cover all the distance. And the same, I thought the same thing applied to uh, cognition. You know, if a computer can do something, then it has to go through the same steps that a person would. Whether or not it takes the exactly same route, I don't know, but... You know, if you have to process text or speech or, you know, make a decision, logically speaking, you have to 
jump over certain hoops to get to the result. And I feel that the... Well, originally I thought that, you know, my kind of experience with writing programs would would help me kind of make hypotheses about the brain. Then, uh, in 2012, which was, I think, more or less when I, the year I started, the deep learning paper came out from Google. Mm-hmm. And of course, you know, they, they said like, hey, deep learning works, you know, we can, this idea that we thought we, in where it was, I don't, I don't know an awful lot about the, the, what happened before that, but I believe, you know, for 10, 15, 20 years, they kind of accepted the, what happened in the 90s, which is that they didn't think it was going to work. Now, suddenly they're saying at big enough scale, with enough data and everything, it can work. And then ever since then, the last six years, there's just result after result after result. And my feeling has shifted massively. Like now I think that we can learn huge amount from that kind of, you know, the machine learning field that rather than having complicated algorithms, whether that be with, with, you know, with oscillations or with um, complicated wiring arrangements and, you know, kind of thinking about things in terms of ands and ors and knots and spike timing and stuff. We know that with a fairly simple mathematical system that the machine learning works and it can solve problems. I mean, it can't solve all the problems that a human can solve for sure, but it can solve a hell of a lot of them. And it no longer makes sense to me to be, to think in terms of algorithms in like the old style programming thing. And that I don't know what the, um, what the internal cortex or the hippocampus is doing, but I'm guessing it's very, very messy because, you know, these deep learning networks are messy. They, you know, they, there's a lot of, uh, information flowing through them and um, stored in them and somehow they there's enough of it to for it to work but that doesn't mean it has to be neat or nicely understandable by us or nicely describable in a, a neat algorithm um, it's just a lot of computation that ends up succeeding and I think that the brain probably works in some sense like that that it's very very messy and that you know we could spend eternity classifying different things that we see there and trying to unpick how they you know how different signals come come to exist in different regions but really it's just a mess and it worked <laughs> which is which is i mean it was a i i, I felt quite strongly about that by the end um i know not not everybody i spoke to kind of agreed with me i think some people did but i kind of by yeah by the end i've didn't really know what questions I wanted to ask anymore because I didn't really have these, like, I mean, maybe, you know, given time, maybe I would have come up with more questions, but I, I felt like the questions I had wanted to ask no longer made any sense that, it, you know, it didn't make sense yeah. to ask what is the algorithm, you know, how is this, I, I used to think of it all in terms of parallel processing, you know, how is all this information being computed efficiently in parallel very quickly? Um, the answer is it's messy and, you know, there it learns from the no it doesn't learn by back propagation in the way that machine learning works but there's presumably some logical analogy somehow um and that that's enough and does it still make sense to study the internal cortex i don't know um i mean not not for the reasons i was interested i suppose
this part I'm asking Daniel about how he feels about the academia having left it, whether he has any regret, does he look at the literature every now and again, what is his view of the state of neuroscience now looking from the outside and having a benefit of distance. Well, um, my wife, who I met while I was doing my PhD, is still doing uh, research in the same field. Um, and, you know, she keeps me in the loop with some of the stuff she's doing. Um, and that's, that's kind of nice to, to have a like, tiny tip of a toe in, still in the water. You know, I, I am interested to hear kind of how things are going along, but that's not to say that I actually sit down and read... Um, read the things that are coming out. I mean, I think a lot of, it's rare, even, you know, even things published in Science and Nature, they're not always going to be that earth shattering that I feel like I'm keen on reading them at this point, which is kind of what I was saying before. It's like, you know, even if you do, even if you really, really excel and succeed and you publish something in, you know, the journal that everybody wants to publish in, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's, it is earth shattering. Um, <laughs> so how do your days look now and what is different from your PhD days? Uh, everything. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, well, but before we go to it a single day, I mean, I think just the structure of my job, and now it's a natural job. Um, I work in a team, which I didn't before. I mean, that that, that was also one of the things I, I, I was very frustrated by, is that, you know, when you're doing a PhD, you have to learn everything from scratch, and then as soon as you get good at it, you pass it on to somebody else, and then there's nobody there's no division of labor it's just everybody has to do everything at some point in their career but where i am now is completely different of course you know we we really are working in a team we all want the product we're producing to get better and better over time and you know there are dis disagreements of course but you know we all have the same goal in mind which you know, ironically it isn't the case in science even though you know people think of science as being this you know noble pursuit and um very rewarding and everybody collaborating and you know reality isn't like that. I spend my days here, meetings and writing code and reviewing other people's code and helping the more junior programmers to skill up and um, uh, oversee a couple of people and yeah, generally kind of listening to feedback from different bits of the business and um, trying to trying to help steer steer things in a good direction. And the exciting thing about being in a startup is that you know you feel you really are all working on a, a project. Um, and it can actually, I mean, a lot of the time it feels like it's a game that, you know, we, we've, you know, we're, you know, I like to play strategy games, computer strategy games every now and again. And it's a bit like that, you know, you're building a little civilization, uh, you know, you, you don't want to be trampled on by your competitors and you have to grow fast, but not too fast or, you know, you'll spread too thinly and um, you know, what things do you yeah, which things are most critical right now which things can you put off to later and how can you all best operate as a team and stuff and you know you can see you get points you know money coming in is basically the game right and that's completely different to science where after two years you maybe publish a paper and the, the instant gratification is obviously a lot a lot more pleasant as well as the team and uh, but is it so unambiguously Good, because on the other hand, you could say that 
Yes, you don't have the instant gratification, but yeah. there is still the idea of the noble pursuit and the, the wider meaning of contributing to science, even if it's the brick in the backyard. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, so I disagree, actually. So I think mm-hmm. uh, on, on, on both sides. So in what I'm doing now, I think, uh, I mean, it, it's, not, uh, it's not science, of course, what I'm doing, but it's still contributing to society. I mean, there are lots of jobs you can do that don't contribute to society, but... I chose this one because it is trying to be noble and solving um, a real problem, which is the housing crisis. And I, you know, it is serious about doing that. And I mean, and there's also the aspect of you know you have you have a goal. So even if you don't feel like nobility is what you're feeling right now, you still have a like a let's play the game and make more money goal, which is um, you know keeps you ticking over. Of course, in the science side. Yeah, I mean, that's why I went in, well, that's one of the reasons I went into science is because I thought, like, I want to, you know, be pushing the boundaries of our knowledge and kind of really understanding what the world is and, you know, what subjective experience of the world is and stuff. And when it comes down to it, like, you have to be very lucky and clever to do that. I think, you know, most science is not rewarding at all. And, I mean, I don't think I'm the only one who would say that. I think, like, you know, most of the people I know who are particularly in my field, um, a lot of them work very hard already, intelligent people, you know, they knew a lot about the field, they, you know, they did the experiments really well and they still didn't find anything and they were, you know, demoralised and they left. And come back to the world of business, like, that kind of thing can't happen here because you've, you only do things if they make sense, you know, as soon as something stops making sense, then, you know, stop it and do something else. But that doesn't happen in science because, you know, you have a PhD program or whatever, and someone's doing research, and um, or you know someone's someone's career depends on making their little sub bit of the field look important, and they have to sort of keep polishing that. Um, and it's not about are we truly achieving things. And if a business makes money and is successful, it's it, that's that's its purpose. It's very clear. And if it doesn't, you do something else in science that just doesn't happen. And that's frustrating and inefficient. And in this part, I'm asking more general questions about the perception of the PhD in the industry because having talked to several people about this not only the employees but also the employers i found that there is a certain aura of a phd that may not always be deserved but it is certainly there and having a phd on your cv gives you a competitive advantage so i asked daniel whether it mattered in his case and whether he feels like he acquired skills during his PhD that he can now use in his day job. So, for people who kind of understand it already at the master's stage, but still go into PhD because they think that would make them more desirable in the job market, and that they think they would acquire the mythical transferable <laughs> skills. Well, that, that's that's a intre- that's a, a very different reason. So um, clearly, I was hired to you know I, I was um, attractive when I was being hired because I had a PhD. There's no doubt about that. And you know, they, whenever we have customers around, like you know, my colleagues are always shout about the fact that oh, Daniel has a PhD, and 
they joke I have two or three PhDs depending <laughs> on what day of the week it is but um, of course it depends where you go into and like I'm sure I could have I'm sure I, I would hope I had I not spent six years doing a PhD I could have more or less gotten to where I am now um, I mean certainly with a degree in maths and physics I would think I could get hired as a, a programmer um, I mean also I spent a lot of my PhD programming that you know I wasn't always encouraged to, to do that so the trans the thing I got at the end was the transferable skill but that wasn't really supposed to be the focus of my PhD the focus was supposed to be you know collecting data and publishing stuff or whatever but the main question oh, is the transferable really, skills yeah really, yeah do they really exist because I have yeah. I have had many conversations with different people who actually have gone to industry and yeah. those who are at their fifth year of the PhD yeah. and who still insist that there are transferable skills. <laughs> Well, I mean, I think you'll learn something. Um, there's probably, there's far more efficient ways of getting those skills. If you want to get those skills, you don't have to spend four, five, six years doing a PhD to get them. I see things differently to my colleagues who haven't done that. Um, whether that's just because of who I am or whether that's because I spent that time doing a PhD, I don't know. I mean, I don't think in, it, it will vary from field to field, but in my case, I didn't really do very many experiments you know i did one long big experiment and then a few side projects that the point is like it's not like you as a scientist you're constantly doing experiments and you get really good at knowing how to design a good experiment and test it and you know uh, iterate on it and stuff that i mean that didn't happen at all for me because it just wasn't you know the cycle took too long so i think you know if you want to learn how to get good experimenting you can do it in the job I'm doing now, you can experiment as well, you know, with, um, well, there's lots of, there's always ways to experiment with, you know, things you build for the customer or how you work within a, um, how you work as a team or something. Everything could be experimented with in one way or another and you can do it a lot more quickly than you can, you know, uh, do surgery on rats and get them <laughs> running around and analyze all that data and stuff. So, yeah, I mean, certainly like the second half of my PhD, I don't think I learned an awful lot. Um, because some people name like being independent and being able to carry projects to the end and being able to write clearly, but I also think that those are not the skills that you need no. to a PhD in any given field. So, in that, well, to take that one in particular, writing clearly, I think you know I had a gap year as an English teacher, as a, um, in in Moscow, and like, I think I learned to communicate. I, mean, I was a terrible teacher, but. I, I certainly learned to sort of simplify my language and kind of, you know, really focus on like, what is it I'm trying to say here? Um, and people have told me that like, I am good at communicating and writing. And I think, I mean, it's partly probably because it's you know, the programmer mindset of how can we efficiently convey this information, but it's also that. And I think, yeah, I, I, I anything you can learn pretty much that's transferable, you could probably learn some other way. In, in business if you know if you want if you know you want the skill to communicate well then just you know find some way of doing it whatever you're doing right now yeah. but do you ever miss having a kind of life path laid out in front of you because i mean if you were to stay in academia you know all the hoops that you Ooh. need to jump through and now i mean yeah. it's, it's great that you yeah. are part of the startup that is growing yeah but then at a certain point it's either well, plateaus or yeah. is sold, and then what? That's a very fair question. I, I don't know. I mean, I, I, um, <clears throat> I mean, if if you like look at my the last ten years of my life on my CV or whatever, you'll I've jumped around. I mean, you already discussed it. Um, I 
don't anticipate staying here forever. I don't know what I'm going to do next. I feel like this experience has kind of given me all, I mean, all kinds of transferable skills. <laughs> like, you know, I've, I've seen different aspects of the business and um, it's not just about programming. I mean, I do a whole range of... So, and in, the other side, in academia, um, it's a pyramid. I mean, you know, not everyone makes it to the top. Um, and if you do, I mean, if you, at a certain point, perhaps it becomes easier, but I think that point may not come till you're in your 40s or even 50s or, or you know, you might find that you've worked yourself into a corner and you, you, know, you, you know, you're an expert in a field that's dying or, um, you know, you feel like you spent 10 years on something that turned out not, not to be correct and then you know, then what I mean, when, I, when I started I my kind of what I said to myself was you know if this goes well yeah let's, I'm going to pursue a career in science because I mean I, I didn't want to do a PhD I wanted to do research um, which I think is a distinction you, know, you want to do research the thing you do is you start with a PhD it, it you know, I didn't go the way I wanted it and that was that was it for me but maybe the still most touted aspect of the academic life is the freedom. The fact that you, you can come yeah. in at yeah. 3 in the afternoon and go out at like 4 in the morning yeah. and no one controls you. That's, that is, I can't deny that is true. Um, yes, you can, you can kind of do whatever you like and, you know, depending on who's watching you, you can not show up for days or whatever. Um, it's a blessing and a curse. I mean, you know, it's nice to... Well, in fact, when, when I started this job, we were in shared office space and um, there wasn't... Um, it was hot desking, so you had to get in early in the morning to get yourself a good monitor for your computer. And uh, that was motivation to me. And, you know, I'd get in at 9 o'clock every day to, to get myself a decent monitor. Um, and then as soon as we moved from that office, then I kind of slipped. So I think there's... Uh, and we have... I mean, we have flexible not not nearly as flexible but you know you don't have to be in at 9am every day you can get in at 10 or 10 30 11 um and obviously a lot of careers will encourage you to work long hours especially at the start but you know i'm fortunate that i found a company that doesn't you know everyone's what time is it well at seven o'clock basically everybody had gone um and um you know, you can work at home if you need to. Um, people do that all the time. Um, so there's, there's. I mean, I think my understanding is that generally speaking, most companies are trying to get more flexible. Um, so yes and no. Yeah. But do you find that this occupation completely fulfills your creative? kind of aspirations that, I mean, having a goal is great, but yeah. when it's not your goal, yeah. when it's yeah. company's goal, yeah. it's a bit different. Absolutely. Um, it, it's very important to have, I mean, to me personally, it's very important to have, like, that creativity, and I certainly, uh, I am able to be creative quite a lot of the time in what I'm doing. Um, you know, I mean, it may not look creative from the outside, but it feels creative, and that's that's the important thing. Yeah. Obviously, I would like, you know, sometimes I run up against reality, and you know, my boss will say, you know, you can't do that. That doesn't that doesn't make sense to the business or whatever. Um, and you know, 
I, that's difficult. But the same would be true in science. You know, you can't just if you have preliminary data for something, you can't be like, well, I believe that now. Like, I'll move on to something more interesting, and you know, maybe I'll come back and publish that later. No, you have to. I mean, you're bound by the reality that you have to do the boring stuff, analyze it, write it up, publish it. You know, submit it, submit it, submit it, and get it accepted. So there are still there's still necessity binding you in some way. Um, in many ways, that's it's worse because of the cycle time because it takes. You know, you have to do. You have to finish your thing that you've been doing, even if it takes you six months. Whereas, in my job, you know, some projects might take a few months, but generally speaking, I can work with other people, or I move on to something else. Or if, if it doesn't make sense anymore, then it'll be stopped. Whereas, you know, back in science, even if it doesn't make sense, you still have to keep going to some extent. So, yeah, absolutely, creativity matters a lot to me. Um, but I think it comes in many shapes and forms, and maybe one day I'll start my own business. Uh, I I have the feeling it won't happen, but you know, maybe I will. And this this past two years of watching this business grow will be hugely hugely uh, important in whether or not I'll be able to make a success of starting. Daniel has left the academia, I couldn't ask my usual three closing questions about the skills that a person who might, as regular listeners may know, I usually ask three questions at the end that are common to all the guests. But this time I couldn't really use the same one since Daniel has left the academia. So I so I adapted these to suit his expertise of a scientist turned developer. So usually I finish with three questions that are okay. common to all the speakers. Okay. But they are very science-based, so I think I will just kind of invert it. Okay. So I usually first ask, what is the skill that you wish you acquired early on in your career? But okay. you, I would ask, what is the skill that was the most difficult for you to acquire when you transitioned to the industry? Okay. Oh, to in, in, in industry? Yeah. Um, well, it actually almost relates to what I just said about, like, accepting when where the bounds are. Okay. You know, saying like, I might want to do this, but no, I can't. Somebody is actually paying me to do my job, and I have to, on some level, I just have to accept that this is my job. And um, it can be frustrating, but then, you know, it's also empowering when you realize that, like, people do trust you. And, you know, if you can make your point clearly and it does make sense, then it will ultimately heard and if it doesn't make sense it didn't make sense anyway so you shouldn't have done it so um but that that was hard um it's, st- it's still hard but um yeah uh, anything else uh well, actually one thing that surprised me was that i didn't i mean i didn't know what a professional programmer looked like um i was kind of slightly nervous and slightly hoping that I would be, you know, amazing. And, um, you know, in the end, I was, I was kind of surprised how much I already knew. Um, that wasn't because I was, I don't think your typical 
personally in my field would have done nearly as much programming as I did. Um, I mean, I've been programming for years before that, but I, yeah, I was surprised how well prepared I was to be a programmer um, when I joined. And that transition from the dark room with the rat <laughs> and, and the team in yeah. like a collaborative yeah. environment, that was not hard at all. No, I mean, I think it's odd because I don't consider myself to be extroverted at all, but I definitely like having conversations and discuss. I, I like to discuss stuff for sure. You know, I like if there's a problem to be solved, I enjoy, you know, breaking it down as a team and trying to come up with solutions and stuff. Um, and yeah, the other, I mean, there was some of that in science and those were the more exciting bits, you know, when I have a discussion with somebody about like some wacky idea or whatever, but that was, you know, few and far, far, yeah, it didn't happen very often, but, um, and when it did happen, you always knew like, well, we never have the resources or time or whatever to, to act on this, which made it just that much more frustrating. So, um, whereas here it's like, you know, what are we going to be doing next week? Yeah. So then, what, what are the core skills for a software engineer now? Uh, the most important thing, I reckon, is maths. Um, so if you... If you're... I think my undergraduate degree did help in kind of really ramming down my throat what it meant for something to be true. <laughs> you know, you, you have... Um, whatever it might be, you know, you have a, a bunch of, of statements and then you go another statement and, um, you know, are you sure that that thing really is true or not? And if you have a really, really firm grasp on that, then, you know, you might not be the most creative programmer, but you can at least be a, you know, a decent one. Um, it's also, I mean, I'm just talking about what I think I'm good at, but I think, um, being able to express yourself very succinctly is incredibly helpful um, because programming is all about expressing complicated things. I mean, they don't necessarily, they're not, com they're not, um, I got it the wrong way around. They're not, uh, you know, it's not quantum mechanics you're trying to deal with, but it's, you know, a long list of complicated things that you have to sort out and you have to enjoy making complicated things look neat and tidy um, because you'll be spending lots of time doing that. Um, and I do enjoy that. I mean, I think I enjoy making, I enjoy kind of expressing things in simple ways. Um, and I think a lot of people, uh, well, wherever I look, there seem to be, you know, whether it's in science or in, uh, in programming or in like the media, whatever, people express things in very inefficient ways. Um, and yeah, if, if you if you express things succinctly, then maybe you're a programmer. And what are the three languages that you would recommend learning in ascending order? Let's say. <laughs> in ascending order, well, it depends what you mean by ascending, actually. But um, I always recommend if you've not learned any programming at all, um, there's kind of two ways you can start. You can either start with C which is a very, very simple language, it has, I think, 32 keywords. If you understand that, you kind of sort of understand everything. Um, basically, all other languages are built on top of C. And not, not exactly, but more or less that's true. Um, so once you understand that, you can kind of do anything. Um, but the other side, is, of course, is if, if you want 
a more fun language to start with to get you motivated because it's important to be motivated early on. Um, then I would try JavaScript and building some building a game or something for the web. Um, I mean, these days I just write in JavaScript, um, and it's a lot lot more complicated than than C. Um, so you won't really truly understand what's going on, but it's more fun to get you started. And a third one, uh, I don't know. Um, you, you, well, you, you can pick Python. I, I, I use Python for a couple. I switched from MATLAB to Python during my PhD because I hated MATLAB so much. But um, it, it doesn't really. I mean, you'll you'll once you've done two, you'll pick up more easily enough. 